We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 16 through 34. And before we get started, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your gospel, for your grace that you've given to us in Christ. Lord, for, for condescending to us, to let us know you. Lord, we just thank you for all of these things. And we ask that you open this word up to us this morning, that you show us wonderful things, that you help us to worship you in spirit and truth, help us to glorify you. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, we're going to be, our text is Acts 17, 16 through 34, and it's it's Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, actually. It's when Paul was in Athens on his second missionary journey. Um, I'm going to back up and kind of take a mile-high view of what has been going on, on on Paul's missionary journey up until we start this text in, in Athens. And to do that, um, I have to go back to chapter 15, so this is my introduction. Um, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, this is Acts 15, 36. Um, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul's going to go back and visit the churches that were planted on the first missionary journey. And I'm not going to read everything that happened. I'm just going to kind of take a little survey. Um, of course, Paul and Barnabas had a dispute, and so Barnabas wound up not going with Paul. It was Paul and Silas. And then in, in chapter 16, at the first part, we see that, that they pick up Timothy along the way. And it seems like Luke is the one recording this. And he says we often enough that I believe Luke was probably with them too. So you have Paul and you have Silas and Timothy and Luke and they're traveling on this second missionary journey. Now I don't know if there's anyone else with them or not, but this is the group that is traveling on this second missionary journey. And in, uh, in chapter 16, we see that they have visited the churches, they have encouraged the churches that were planted, and then they are trying to decide where to go, and the Holy Spirit is directing them. And Paul has a vision, and there's a man in Macedonia saying in this vision that Paul has while he's sleeping, he says, come over here and help us. And so he's convinced that this is the Lord telling him to come to Greece. Macedonia is Greece. Come to Greece and help us. So they go to Greece, and they end up at Philippi. And in Philippi, they go down to the river where people are meeting for prayer. And Paul preaches the gospel to them. And there's a woman named Lydia who the Lord opens her heart to hear the things that Paul is saying about the gospel and about Christ. And she's converted. She becomes the first European convert. Now, I know there's a lot of details in here that I'm leaving out, but I'm just kind of setting the stage to where we are going in our text today. I'm going to start reading here in verse 16 of, of chapter 16. It happened 
that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. So Paul goes there and is preaching the gospel, and Lydia's converted, and her household is converted, and there's the beginnings of a church, and they're going about preaching the gospel, and then they cast the demon out of this slave girl, which what she said was the truth, but Paul couldn't have, light and darkness don't have anything in common. And so he couldn't have the gospel associated with this, this uh, demonic possession. And so anyway, cast the... He cast the demon out. They're thrown into prison. Everyone, we all know the story. There's an earthquake because they're singing praises. And in the middle of the night, their bonds are loosed. Through it all, the jailer and his family come to know the Lord. And then the next day, the people realize, the magistrates realize they've made a mistake by beating Paul because he's Roman and they want him to get out of town. So anyway, they leave. They've caused a big stir there in Philippi. Now they leave. They go on to Thessalonica. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to start in chapter 17 now and read verses 1 through 9. They're in Thessalonica. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So, Paul preaches the gospel. He goes to Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. People get saved. There's a negative reaction from the world. And this is the negative reaction. And, and actually, the King James puts it this way. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And that's what happens when the gospel is faithfully preached, the world is turned upside down, and the world doesn't like that. There's a negative response. Everywhere everywhere that Paul goes, this is what's going on. And we'll continue on to Berea now.
They leave there. I'm going to go to verse 10. And read through 15. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So, the gospel was preached. Some believed, most rebelled against the gospel, and they wound up in an uproar. Everywhere that Paul went preaching the gospel, two things happened. People got saved. Christ's sheep heard his voice, and a riot started. Everywhere that Paul went. That, that tells me something about our gospel preaching. We're not starting very many riots today. You know, just saying. The world is going to be in opposition. Every time, if we faithfully preach the gospel, two things are going to happen. Christ's sheep will hear his voice, people will get saved, and there will be opposition. It's going to happen. So, now we get to verse 16, and this is where our message begins. Paul's in Athens. I'm going to read through the text, and then we'll work back through it verse by verse. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So verse 16, we see that Paul is, he's in Athens, he's waiting for the rest of his missionary party to arrive, and while he's waiting there, it's like if he, if he uh, went to, if he came to Lake Charles and he went and got a room downtown, and he's downtown in the middle of the, the city, and he's watching everything that's going on, you know, the hustle and bustle of everyday life, and he's provoked his spirit is provoked within him as he observes the people worshiping idols. You know, one of the reasons I think that we don't proclaim the gospel like we should is because we're not provoked that people worship idols instead of the living God. We're not provoked because we're used to it. It's part of our life. It's part of our culture. Idol worship is. We need a holy jealousy for the glory of God. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. And everyone is either worshiping God, the living God, or they're worshiping idols. They're worshiping an idol. Whatever you depend on, whatever you find your security in is what you worship. You know... You say, well, these people, they were worshiping statues. These people were brilliant. They weren't worshiping statues. These people, they were highly educated. They were very, very sophisticated. They weren't worshiping statues. Let's think about this. What would this look like today, in today's terms? You know, some people worship education. Some people very highly prize and value education. Athena, the goddess Athena, was the goddess of wisdom. Some people worship pleasure. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty. Some people worship power, strength, status, the ability to get things done. Zeus was the king of gods. He was the god of thunder and lightning. He got things done. Some people worship prosperity. Some people that claim to be Christian worship prosperity. You know, the Greeks achieved a lot of their wealth from the sea. 
And Poseidon was the god of the sea whose favor that they looked for for their commerce and trade. You see, you get the point. You see what I'm trying to say. The ancient Greeks weren't worshiping statues. The statues just represented what they were worshiping. The same thing is true today. The same thing, the same false gods are still all around us today and people are worshiping. As a matter of fact, I would say that all of us, every one of us, has sometime or another have paid homage to all of those false gods. All of us. The same idols, they're still there. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Verse 17 says, So he was reasoning, Paul is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Our message, the gospel message is the same to everyone. He's reasoning with the Jews. He's reasoning with the Gentiles and all those who happen to be present. Whether you're Jew or Greek or, or whether you're male or female, whether you're a child, whether you're an older person, no matter your nationality, no matter where you come from or who you are, the gospel is the same. Our message is the same to everyone. And then not only that, but we see in this that the gospel is not just a Sunday in the church house message. It is a Sunday in the church house message because we need it every day. But the gospel is an every day in the marketplace message. It's what it says, in the marketplace, every day, Paul is reasoning with people and he's telling them the gospel the gospel, it should be the primary focus of our lives. You know, um, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether you then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. As we go through our lives daily, as, as we teach school, we should be doing so as a witness of Christ. As we are working as a police officer or a fireman, it's, it's for the glory of Christ. And, and that witness, we in this world, as we go in the marketplace, every day are his witnesses, whatever we do, in business. Um, if you're a mother and you're at the grocery store, you're buying your groceries and raising your family and, and taking care of your children, you're doing it to the glory of God and you're doing it as a witness for Christ, if you're his, every day to everyone. That's our, that's our mission and our goal. And in verse 18 it says, And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let's look at what Epicureanism and Stoicism are. Epicureanism, that was a system of philosophy. It was based on the teachings of Epicurus, and it was founded around 307 B.C. Now, Epicureanism was a philosophy of naturalism, materialism. There's no supernatural. There's no divine intervention. 
In Epicureanism, pleasure is the greatest good. But it's not hedonism. Pleasure is the greatest good, but pleasure is achieved through modest living and self-control. In other words, in Epicureanism, it's about ordering your life to achieve the maximum pleasure and comfort with the least amount of pain and discomfort. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that what everybody wants? That's what we, we want for our children, to have the, the best life they can for as long as possible. That's what Epicureanism is. And then Stoicism, it was founded by Zeno of Citium in Athens in the early 3rd century B.C. And it's a system of personal ethics formed by applying the laws of logic to the natural world. Stoicism taught that virtue is the only good where human beings are concerned. Virtue. And Stoicism taught that true happiness comes from a virtuous life, not from external circumstances. Living a virtuous life will make you happy. That's what Stoicism taught. Now, and so to live well, what a person had to do is they had to understand the laws of nature, the laws of the natural order, and then order their life according to those laws. That was how to live a good life if you were a Stoic. I would submit to you that you put Stoicism and Epicureanism together, you have today's humanism. That's the world we live in. The foundation of Western culture is right here in Greece, and that's what Paul is dealing with here in Acts 17. He's speaking to the modern world. Much of our modern thought comes from these two schools of philosophy. So what did Paul preach to them? He preached Jesus and the resurrection. That's what Paul preached to them. The gospel is not to be mixed with worldly thinking and philosophy. It's meant to deliver us from worldly thinking and philosophy. That's what we preach. We preach Jesus and the resurrection. Let's look at verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. <laughs> well, let me, let me describe to you where they're taking him. I, I actually had the privilege of going there. This is an ancient place, and it is amazing when you see some of the things there. Athens is a huge city. It's a huge city. There's Today, there are 10 million people in Greece and 5 million of them live in Athens. And this place where Paul is going to preach this message is right smack in the middle of it. There's a mountain, and at the top of the mountain is the Acropolis. And it's a bunch of temples to pagan gods. The Parthenon is up there, and there's all of this stuff. There's huge amphitheaters. At the bottom of this mountain, there's a big chunk of rock that's called Mars Hill. Or the Oropagus. And, and this big chunk of rock was a really good place to climb up on top of and talk to a lot of people. And so that's what they would do. They would have somebody, a, a teacher or an orator or whatever, they put him up on this rock and he would make his speech. And lots of people could gather around and hear what he had to say. 
So, this is what they do. They take him to the Oropagus. They put him up on Mars Hill. And I want you to know something. The people there were no different than the people today. When you think about what they're doing, they're saying, you know, you're talking about strange things. This is something new, and we want to hear it because it's new, it's different. Think about the popularity of programming on television like Fox News or CNN or the Discovery Channel, shows like Dr. Phil or reality TV. I don't even know if I still show anymore, but reality TV shows, stuff that people like to watch. People are constantly looking for something new. Something to distract us, something that will capture our attention and amuse us for a little while. And then it, it's old news and it goes, well, I, I think, you know, the media and the government seem to me like this is going on constantly. And it always is. The media is going from one crisis to the next. There's always a crisis. And as soon as this one, you know, kind of gets old <clears throat> and it kind of wears off and people aren't as affected by it, then something else will come up. And then something else. And it's a constant thing. There's always a distraction. I, I really think there's a purpose for that. I think because the God of this world is trying to distract us from the real problems of sin and death. And so there's always something going on. Some, some crisis that we have to deal with or something important to distract us from reality. And, uh, but this is what they were looking for. This is what they were interested in, some new crisis, something to distract them, to entertain them. But you know what? That's something new that they're always looking for, that we're always looking for. It never brings satisfaction and contentment. People are always looking for the next big thing, the next thing. It will never satisfy, but I'll tell you what does. Looking to God in Christ brings satisfaction, brings contentment brings peace. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. As Christians, we don't look from the next big thing, the next thing, and the next thing. We look to Christ, and we just proclaim him to the world. Say, turn away from this stuff. Stop. Stop looking at these things and look to Christ and trust him in the midst of these things. So verse 22, Paul standing in the midst of the Oropagus and he says, Men of Athens, observe that you're very religious in all respects. Everyone is religious. Everyone. Even the people who strongly claim otherwise. There are a lot of people that say, Oh, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in supernatural. I guarantee you that they worship something. Our culture, really the devil, has sold us a bill of goods and convinced us that religion only applies to those who believe in the supernatural. Worship is worship, whether you're worshiping the supernatural or the physical. It's still worship. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, starting verse 21, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. 
Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Whether you're worshipping the living God, whether your worship is supernatural, or whether you're worshipping the physical, the temporal, Everyone worships. Everyone. Verse 23. Paul says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You know, this is what's called hedging your bets. Or, uh, or, Diversifying your portfolio if you're invest in your if you're in investments, um, I, this drives me insane when I see it. But I don't know if you're on Facebook. Yeah, I know you've seen this. If you're on social media, where somebody will have trouble and there'll be trouble in their family or trouble in their life, and they'll say something like, "Well, you know, we need prayers, or we need you to light a candle for us, or send us good vibes, or rub your lucky rabbit's foot, or whatever it is you do," but we need help. That's not religion. That's not Christianity. That's pagan spirituality. That's what that is. Spirituality and worship of the living God are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And if someone is calling for that sort of thing, see, the trend is everybody wants to be spiritual and everybody wants to be inclusive. So they're going to just include all of it. Well, that's not Christianity and that's not spiritual. It's just pagan spirituality. There's one God. There's only one way to get to Him. There's one mediator between God and man. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. The God who is cannot be contained. I could just stop right there, but He cannot be contained by a temple. He can't be contained by a building or a statue or an image. He cannot be contained. He's infinite, He's limitless, and He's transcendent. He's not served by human hands. There's not one single solitary thing that we can bring to God that's not His already. You know, we don't give anything to Him. He gives everything to us. Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He's God. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Every human being comes from one man. There's no such thing as race except for the human race. Race is simply a social construct that people use to differentiate between themselves. People in groups, 
they, they've come up with these social constructs that they use to differentiate between themselves and groups of people, other groups of people, based on external attributes, physical attributes. There's no such thing as race. Racism of any kind is wickedness, period. God made everyone from one man. And God is sovereign over all the people groups. Where they live, whether or when they rise to prominence, and when they fade into obscurity, and they do. The nations rise and they fall. We, if we're in Christ, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We belong to a holy nation that's transcendent over the other nations. It's good for us not to get too caught up in the temporal nation that we're residing in right now because the kingdom that we belong to is an eternal kingdom. It transcends this temporary worldly kingdom and these worldly kingdoms rise and fall but the kingdom that we're a part of, it's not going anywhere. It's here forever. And that's what we're to be proclaiming is that kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Being then the children of God, I skipped a couple of verses, that they would seek God. He made from people all over the world, he made them from one man, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, we also are his children. God has created humanity that we might seek after him and that we might glorify him by depending upon him. You know, that's, that's, that's God created mankind to depend on him, to worship him, and to glorify him by doing so. What, what does, he has told you what is good, old man. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? He has created us to glorify Him by looking to Him and depending on Him for His provision. He's to seek after Him. He's not a distant God. He's not unaware of His creatures. And we only continue to exist in Him, because He wills it so. He's giving us life and breath and all things. Right now, our hearts are beating because God wills it. He's sovereign over everything. He's actively preserving and giving existence to us and to everything else that you see, everything that exists. There's nothing that exists outside of God or separate from God. That's really encouraging if you're in Christ. If you worship God, if you love God and you understand there is no enemy out there. It's not like a yin and yang or a good and evil that are equal. God is God and He's sovereign over it all. And it only exists, the enemies that are out there only exist for God's glory. Because He allows them to exist to bring Him glory. Let's look at verse 28 and 29 together. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. 
Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now, let me tell you what Paul is not saying in this text. He's not saying that everyone is a child of God as in born again and adopted into his family. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that every human being is generated by God and bears the divine image. Every single human being. A man's not just a physical creature. A man has a, he's a spiritual creature. He has a spirit, a soul, a mind, and a heart. And this cannot be portrayed by a physical image or a statue. We can't make a statue of a person and you understand that person, that you get their essence from that statue. You can tell what they look like, but you still don't know who they are. You can't know them by that. I can take a picture of someone and you can guess a few things about them by that picture, but you don't know them. They're, who they are cannot be contained in that picture because they are made in the image of God. There's much more to them than just that picture. And that's what Paul is telling them by this. If this is true of the creature... This is what he's trying to get across to him. If the creature, us who are finite, cannot be contained in an image, neither can the God who created us. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. That's what Paul is telling them. Verse 30 and 31 says, Therefore, he said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. There's a day coming, it's already been chosen and fixed, that God will judge everyone who ever lived. He's going to judge them righteously with perfect justice. This means that he's by no means going to let the guilty go unpunished. You know, that's really bad news if you're outside of Christ. It's bad news if you're outside of Christ that there's a day coming when God is going to judge the world in righteousness and he's going to judge the world both through Christ and by Christ. This means that Christ is the judge. But He's not just the judge. He's the standard. He's the judge and He's the standard. You're not going to be judged by a list of rules. You're going to be judged by the righteousness of God in Christ. That's how you will be judged. No matter what law or standard that you may think that you have kept... The only righteousness that God is going to accept is the righteousness of Christ. That perfect righteousness that's found in Him. He's the righteousness of God incarnate. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Not just externally, but from the heart. See, Jesus always loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And his neighbor as his self. We haven't even for a millisecond 
but he always did. And the resurrection is the proof of that. That's what Paul is saying. The resurrection is the proof that Christ is the Lord. See, death could not hold Jesus. Death could not hold Christ because there was no sin in Christ. Death had no hold over Him. The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. There's not a single one of us here that can say that death has no hold over us because we don't have sin. Nobody can make this claim. So our only hope is, as Paul is saying, to repent. To change our mind. To forget about our own righteousness because we have none. To not try to establish our own righteousness by keeping a law, but instead throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God and the righteousness that He has freely given us in Christ. If we do that, then we can be confident that death won't have any hold over us either. Didn't hold our Christ, it didn't hold our Lord and it won't hold us. But it, it's not going to not hold us because there's no sin in us. It's going to not hold us because there's no sin in Christ and Christ is in us. That's the gospel. That is the gospel message. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's look at verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is a universal response to the gospel, what you see right here in this text. Some people sneered, and that happens. I've gone out evangelizing. I go out sometimes and talk to people. I share the gospel with people that I, that I meet every day sometimes, and some of them sneer. Some of them are curious, and some believe. That's the universal response. That's the way God has decreed it to be. Our, resp our responsibility is not the response. Our responsibility is to proclaim the truth, just like Paul did, and this is what's going to happen. Some will sneer, some will be curious, and some will believe. Although it doesn't reference it directly, in this sermon, I believe in this message Paul is proclaiming, he is proclaiming the message of Psalm 96. Actually, some of it I think he's quoting word for word. He just doesn't, he doesn't say that that's what he's quoting, but I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to listen carefully to what it says about God and what it says about our Lord Christ, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Now this is Paul's message to Athens. This is Paul's message to Lake Charles. This is the gospel. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one true God. Our message is look to Him. Turn to Him. Turn from idols. Turn from all of these things that we distract ourselves in the world and turn to Him the one true living God and be saved. And we have this promise if we do. There is therefore now no condemnation. He's coming to judge the world. The day is fixed. But there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.